0: Well, good morning, Peace Church. Uh, My name is Nate. I'm the community pastor, and it is my joy and honor to get to open God's Word with you on this Palm Sunday. We are in the middle of a series right now uh, called The Verdict. And in this series, we've been talking about the trial and triumph of Jesus Christ. So we spent the last couple weeks looking at the time when Jesus was betrayed and arrested and then when he was denied and abandoned. And now today as we launch into this Holy Week, we are focusing on the moment when Jesus was brought to trial and when he was convicted. Now, as I preach on this topic, I can't help but be personally reminded of what for me was the strangest moment, the strangest instance of my time as a preacher. Uh, Some of you may know my family and I moved here about a year ago from California. And California is a little bit different than here. We'll say that. Uh, Well, one time I was preaching and uh, everything was going pretty normal, pretty smooth. And then something happened to me that had never happened before. Uh, A gentleman that was about smack dab in the middle of the congregation, he decided that he would take what I was planning on being as more of a monologue sermon. And uh, he decided to transform it into a dialogue. Uh, He did so by shouting out something that I was not anticipating. I was not talking about Jesus's trial and conviction, but I was actually talking about how the apostle Paul was arrested and brought to trial and then how he ended up in prison. And this gentleman called out unexpectedly, I got a trial coming up too. (laughs) And he said, and I might be going to prison Now, there are certain lines you can kind of ignore, pass by, but this wasn't one of them, and uh, I studied for a lot of things in seminary, but they did not prepare me for that moment, but I just thought, come on, Nate, you can handle this. You're a preacher. What do you do? Well, you got to pray, so I just looked at this guy, and I said, you know, we're just going to stop. We're going to pray for you. I didn't know if he was guilty or innocent. I didn't even know what he was being accused of, but I just prayed that God's mercy and his justice would rule, that God's sovereign hand would guide this man's future. And I prayed for him, finished up, said amen. I actually thought to myself, this has turned into quite a powerful and personal moment that I wasn't expecting. But that's not where the interaction ended, (laughs) because he wanted a little follow-up. And his follow-up was more bizarre and unexpected than his original interjection, because he said, uh, pastor... Now I'm feeling kind of bad that you prayed for me because I made up that whole thing about the trial and going to prison. (laughs) I don't remember exactly how I transferred out of that. I tried to kind of block it out of my memory. I do remember what what went through my head at that moment though. As I sat up there and heard this, I just thought to myself, I gotta get out of California. (laughs) here I am praise God we are picking up in Matthew 27 today where we are talking about a real true story about when Jesus was actually arrested and he was brought to a real trial this is the real deal so please turn with me to Matthew 27 starting in verse 11. You can either follow along in your Bibles or with the verses that will be up on the screen. So as we jump in, I just want to give a little refresher on the context of where we are at in the story. It's morning of the day of the crucifixion, and the chief priests and the elders, these religious leaders, they have G- Jesus arrested and bound now, but they lack the final authority to impose the death sentence uh, on While they're under Roman rule. Only the Romans can do that. So where we're entering into the story today, the religious leaders have delivered Jesus over to a Roman governor, the governor over the province of Judea. His name is Pontius Pilate. And they've delivered him for a trial and for what they are hoping is a verdict of guilty. So read with me in Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor So pause here. What is going on here? These religious leaders bring him before Pilate, but they don't accuse him of blasphemy as they have been doing. That wouldn't mean anything to a Roman governing official. So instead, they make the claim that Jesus himself is saying that he is the king of the Jews. Pilate, in turn, would be forced to naturally interpret that as a challenge to Caesar's rule. So, as we continue in verse 15, we're going to see that Pilate has his hands tied here and he has to do something. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now, this story, we find it in all four Gospels. Some of them provide a couple different details, and the Gospel of Mark tells us more about this Barabbas. He says he was a convicted murderer who led an attempted insurrection against the Roman uh, government. So Pilate decides to give the crowd what he thinks has got to be an easy choice here, uh, release a tried and convicted killer, or... Jesus, a man whose only crime seems to be that he's making the other religious leaders jealous. Back in verse 19, besides, when Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Husbands, listen to your wives. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. They choose a murderer over the author of life. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So our Palm Sunday chants of Hosanna have now faded away. And they've been replaced by the cries of crucify him. The gospel of Luke tells us that their voices prevailed. We'll finish in verse 24 to the end of our passage. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water And he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray you would open us up to receive it. Our prayer is that you would teach us and that you would transform us this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we look deeper into the Texas Palm Sunday, I want us to just ask one big, simple question. Who determined the verdict on Jesus? And to answer this question this morning, we're going to do something a little different than what we normally do when we move from top down in our passage. I want to start at the end and move backward so that we can find out the answer to this question, who determined the verdict on Jesus? What led to his conviction and his crucifixion? So we're going to start in the last verse that we just read, verse 26. Here it is again. Then he, Pontius Pilate, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pontius Pilate is this governor official. He's the one who's formally in power when Jesus receives his conviction of guilt, when he's sentenced to die. And his name, in turn, has become synonymous now throughout history with the suffering that Jesus had to endure leading up to the cross and up on the cross. So much so, it's just been etched into our church history in our famous Apostles' Creed that we say time and again, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. But it's clear, maybe you noticed in the reading of this passage again, it's pretty clear that Pilate did not truly believe Jesus was guilty, even of the false crimes he was accused of. And he certainly did not feel that he was deserving of crucifixion. I see in verse 23, Pilate asked the crowd a question he already knows the answer to. He says, what evil has Jesus done? And what is just alluded to here in Matthew's account is made explicit in the account of John, where we learn that after saying this, Pilate outright shared, I find no guilt in this man. So as we try to decipher this morning who determined the verdict on Jesus, while Pilate certainly played a key role, and while he definitely bears responsibility, here's how I would characterize Pilate's true contribution here. Pilate delivered the verdict, but he didn't ultimately determine it. And don't get me wrong here. uh, Pilate was nowhere close to upholding the responsibility of a fair and an honest judge. But we'll see as we keep moving backward through our passage that there are other responsibility parties as well. So let's keep moving back, going deeper, and ask ourselves, why did Pilate, a man who knew Jesus was innocent and a man who had power, why did he deliver a guilty verdict? We see why in verse 21. The governor again said to the crowds, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to these crowds, he said, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But the crowds shouted out all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate may have delivered the verdict, but it was these crowds that were demanding it. That doesn't let Pilate off the hook, we know, but we have to acknowledge that whenever a situation like this devolves into all of the masses against one single individual, we know that mob rule often reigns supreme. In fact, we see in verse 25 that when Pilate tries to wash his hands of the situation, the crowds willingly take on the blame of this delivered conviction. Here's what verse 25 says. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. With a line like that, it is tempting to pin this blame squarely on the crowds because after all, they are gladly receiving it. They are asking for it. However, I would say that while the crowds demanded the verdict, they didn't ultimately determine it as we look closer and go another step back, we see that these crowds were being used as puppets and there was another group that was truly pulling the strings. After all, why would the crowds who shouted Hosanna in the highest a few days earlier now demand a guilty verdict that would lead to a crucifixion? That's where verse 20 gives us the answer. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. If you know the stories of Jesus' life, it should not surprise you that it's these religious leaders behind the scenes who are stirring up the crowd to call for Jesus to be convicted as guilty because these religious leaders were jealously opposed to Jesus from day one of his ministry. Verse 18 confirms that it was out of envy, that they had delivered Jesus out. The religious leaders were envious of the true authority that Jesus carried. And they were jealous that he had this popularity and this power that they so desperately wanted. And they were honestly terrified that if Jesus stuck around too long, everything that they held dear, their positions, their power, their influence, their control could be taken away. So is that our answer then? Did the religious leaders ultimately determine the verdict on Jesus? Here's what I would say. While the religious leaders directed the verdict, I still don't think they ultimately determined it. Because as we've worked backwards through this passage to try to get to the root of this question, these religious leaders do seem to be the main party responsible. They're pulling the strings. But I still think we'll find that's an insufficient answer. So what is our conclusion then? Who determined the verdict on Jesus? Well, here is the catch to our mystery here. While our series is called The Verdict, I believe there are actually two verdicts determined in this trial and triumph of Jesus Christ. First, there is the human verdict, that which we've been talking about today, the verdict of guilt that was delivered by Pilate, that was demanded by the crowds, and that was directed by the religious leaders, but that was a false verdict. In a way, you can make an argument from this passage that any or all of the parties we've been talking about bear true responsibility for that determined verdict, but there was another verdict ultimately decided and determined behind the scenes. That is the divine verdict, the true verdict, that only a perfectly good and sovereign God can make. And that verdict was not a conviction of guilt on Jesus, but it was a declaration of total innocence. Let's take one more step back today to the event that Pastor Travis shared about with the kids and with us, To look at what we're gathered here to celebrate today, to look at Palm Sunday. Let's look at the triumphal entry and see something that I think many of us might not have seen before as God the Father gives the true verdict on Jesus Christ, that He is the only innocent one. He is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, as we enter Holy Week, year after year after year, I think we can often miss the context of what was happening in Jerusalem during the week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection that we remember on Good Friday and that we celebrate on Easter. Because at that time when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, Jews from throughout the world were gathered in Jerusalem to observe the Passover, And the Passover is a celebration where the Jews would sacrifice lambs to remember how God had passed over the sins of the Israelites and how God had saved them from death. Now, the triumphal entry that we read about, that Pastor Travis read about in Matthew 21, took place on the Sunday before Jesus was crucified, which would have been the 10th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar. That may seem arbitrary now, but there's, there's, there's meaning there, there's significance. This, uh, this triumphal entry happened on the 10th day of the first month, which we now call Palm Sunday. But for the people in Jesus' time, they wouldn't have known that as Palm Sunday, and they would have actually had a much different significance that they would observe on that day. For them, the Sunday before celebrating the Passover, the 10th day of the first month, was the designated date for the selection of the Passover lamb. They selected the Passover lamb on that date because God explicitly commanded them to. We see that in Exodus 12. It's worth our time to read it. Read it with me in verse one uh, of chapter 12, where it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And get this, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So on the 10th day of the first month, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey was the day of selecting the Passover lamb. And when selecting the Passover lamb, what did we just read? It couldn't just be any lamb. The sacrificial lamb for the Jews had to meet God's specific requirement of being a lamb without blemish. And this was done to point to and to foreshadow that when the final sacrifice would come, the the one who would be worthy to take on all sins once for all, when he would come, he would need to be perfectly and completely innocent. So church, listen to this. On the day the people of God, when Jesus was riding in, when they were searching for and selecting lambs without blemish, God selected and presented his lamb without blemish, his son without sin, his perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And in doing so, God himself, not Pilate, and not the crowds, and not the religious leaders, and not you, and not me, but God himself determined the true verdict on Jesus Christ, that Jesus is innocent. On that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, hearing the cries of Hosanna, God the Father was calling out to all who would listen then and to us today, this is the verdict. Jesus is innocent, and I choose him to take away your guilt. By the time Jesus was brought before those religious leaders and that crowd, and Pontius Pilate himself, the true verdict had already been determined. God determined the verdict on Jesus. And do you know what that means for us today? It means that Jesus was not relegated to the cross because of a false conviction from a cowardly governor. And it means that Jesus was not sentenced to be tortured and to die because a fickle crowd was easily swayed. And it means that Jesus was not convicted and crucified because a group of religious leaders were jealous. It means that Jesus willingly entered Jerusalem and marched toward that cross because he received the only verdict of innocence from the Father God himself. It means that Jesus intentionally offered himself up to this faulty trial and this false conviction because he was the only one who was worthy to die in our place. And it means that Jesus surrendered himself, not just to our sin and to his death, but he surrendered himself to the will of the Father for our redemption, because Jesus knew that no one and nothing can ever come between our great God and his beloved people. Amen? Amen. God determined the verdict on Jesus. Amen. I hope we can all, every age, that we can revel in this beauty on this Palm Sunday. But I also hope you can see how this applies to your life and specifically to those of us who follow Jesus. Here's our takeaway. Here's our challenge and our encouragement this morning. Do not make the same mistake that the religious leaders and the crowds and that Pilate made. Do not call guilty what God has declared innocent. And as I prayed about this message, God just put on my heart to speak directly to a specific group of people today, to those of us who are, have faith in Jesus and are following him. And if you're here or watching online and you are not a follower of Jesus, what I'm about to share does not apply to you yet, but you are hearing this message for a reason, because this freedom about which, which we are going to talk about, is available to you if you receive the grace of God and the forgiveness that comes through Christ alone. But for those of us here who follow Jesus, because the innocent one took on our guilt and the punishment in our place, we, the convicted guilty, are now innocent because of Jesus. And do not call guilty what God has declared innocent. If you have received the forgiveness of God, then the false, the human verdicts that come at you from all sides and oftentimes even from within, from ourselves, those false human verdicts on you are guilty. But the true divine verdict for you is the same that it was for Christ Jesus. And by the grace of God, through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, you are innocent. I went through a season of my life, even after becoming a follower of Jesus, even after training to become a pastor where I got plugged into a church for one season of my life. And while I love the church, I love the church so much, I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't love the church. In this specific local environment, this community was consistently pointing me to view my own sin through the lens of guilt, and shame, and condemnation. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is not how you view your own sin. You view it as real, and you view the verdict of guilty against ourselves because of our sin real, but you view your sin through the lens of Jesus Christ, through his innocence given and imputed to us. If you have come out of one of those environments, and it could be A home, it could be a community, it could even be a church, unfortunately. But I want you to hear in this moment, right here, right now, that if you have received the grace of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, because He is innocent, so are you. A lot of times, even after coming out of one of those environments, you can carry some baggage and you can have some scars, but there's nothing that God's grace cannot conquer. And so, if you have been affected by that kind of thinking, by one of those environments, I want to remind you and challenge you and encourage you today. Do not call guilty what God has declared innocent. If you find yourself uh, just crushed under the weight of guilt and having to bear that weight of shame and having to deal with the fear of condemnation, you need to know that no one Not yourself, not anyone in the world, not even the powers of hell can declare as guilty what God through Jesus Christ has declared innocent already. So who determined the true verdict on Jesus? God himself. And he has also determined the true verdict for me and for you. And that is something worth celebrating this Holy Week. Amen? Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I want to pray for you and prepare our hearts to sing one last song of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have looked at your word, and we have seen that no matter what anyone in the world has said, you have declared that your son was innocent and worthy to take on our sin and to take on our punishment in our place. God, as we prepare our hearts to remember the cross this Good Friday. I pray all week long, you would just be reminding us that the work he accomplished on that cross, we participate in and it transfers to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we continue to look ahead and prepare for Easter, we thank you that the story did not end on the cross, but through your glorious resurrection, you defeated sin and you defeated death. And you conquered every false verdict about your son and about us today. God, it is your amazing grace that we cling to. We no longer view our sin as through the context of condemnation. But through Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation. Now there is just your amazing grace. Lord. Be honored in our singing of your grace and remind us that while we were at one point a wretch and it left to our own devices would still be through the gift of your forgiveness, through the grace of your redemption, we are now clean because of Jesus. We love you, God, and we pray this all in your name.